Good morning, everybody. It is Lisa Salberg with the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association here for an episode of Tales from the Heart. And we're a day early this week. We are here on Thursday, March 24th. It's 11 a.m. Eastern time. If you're joining us live, we will take questions and answers at the end of the segment. I um, will be on vacation and or business travel for the next few weeks. So you may find Tales from the Heart coming to you on different days of the week so that we can um, do the work on the road and also take a little vacation. So today I am joined by my dear friend for many, many years, Dr. Harry Lever. And for the purpose of those who are listening, who are maybe new to HCM, I am going to ask Dr. Lever to tell us a little bit about his training, his experience, and where he practiced. Good morning, Harry. Hi. Uh, well, I uh, trained at the university. My cardiology was at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York, and I had the opportunity to train with one of the early investigators in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Pravin Shaw. And at that time, we were doing echocardiograms that were called M-modes. They were single-dimension echoes, and we... Um, you know, it was amazing that we could make diagnoses with such crude instruments, but we did, and he taught me a lot, and I maintained my interest. Um, I was at the University of Pittsburgh for a short time. I went back there where I had had my internal medicine, and then uh, moved to the Cleveland Clinic in uh, uh, 1978, and have been associated with the Cleveland Clinic ever since. I... Um, started seeing patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as soon as I got to the clinic. And we were fortunate enough to develop a very large practice of the disease. And, uh, and it really took off. It was uh, November of 1996 when I met Lisa at the um, American Heart Association in New Orleans. And I was very fortunate to get there because I probably was on the last plane out of Cleveland in a snowstorm. <laughs> and the rest of the time I was talking to my wife about how bad the weather was and we had, had got a lot of snow. So I, if I hadn't gotten on that plane, I probably never would have met Lisa. So that's that. that. Well, I think our paths would have eventually crossed. It probably but... crossed, but I mean, but it was amazing. We went back and looked at our data. And from that point on, we started seeing a lot more patients and we, we, our operative experience significantly increased, and I've just, you know, we maintain doing that. Unfortunately, this COVID um, um, virus uh, forced me from seeing patients because I'm a bit older now, and we didn't have the vaccine early on and thought that the risk would be too high. So I'm, I'm, I'm still involved with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, I'm teaching some classes in it. Uh, I'm also involved in the problem of generic drugs, and we've done some, we're continuing to do some work with that. So I'm maintaining my interest in this problem. And you join me every other month at Fur Tales right. from the Heart, where we get right. to talk all things HCM and maybe take some deep dives into topics from time to time. Um, and this month, our theme is arrhythmias and life with devices. So... Each month, the HCMA kind of keeps a theme so we can keep our communications on a particular topic because HCMA is complicated. It's not just one thing to one person and that same thing to everybody else. It's a very individualized disease state 
that can have a number of different manifestations. So today I thought I would take a deep dive with Dr. Lever um, on atrial fibrillation and HCM. So we know atrial fibrillation is really common among all people, but Dr. Lever, can you first explain what atrial fibrillation is and why in HCM is it a little different than without HCM? Uh, atrial fibrillation is a rapid irregular beating of the upper chambers of the heart. It can make people dizzy, uh, you can uh, get very short of breath, and it's something that has to be dealt with quickly because uh, you can form clots in the heart, in the upper chambers of the heart, and particularly in what we call the atrial appendages. These are little sacs that are off the right atrium and the left atrium, and if uh, the left atrium probably gets more clots than the right, uh, so that's if you get if you get a rapid irregular beating of the heart you need to uh, have it looked at very quickly and not let it go it's it's very important so let's first talk about atrial fibrillation detection how does one know if they're in atrial fibrillation well you uh, it you can feel a rapid beating of the heart and if you take your pulse it it'll more than likely be irregular there is a condition called atrial flutter, which is a more organized beating of the, of the upper chambers, but it, it, and it tends to be more regular, but it's rapid. And uh, we take an EKG and we can see that it's uh, this, this, what we call flutter. Um, it, um, nowadays, also, uh, you can, uh, there are devices that you can wear. You can wear an Apple Watch. Uh, you uh, can get a fit, there are Fitbit devices that you can also check your rhythm. But I would say if you feel dizzy, you know you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, get to the hospital and have somebody see you. I wouldn't fool around with it. I think when you break things down into formulas, it makes life a little bit easier. So the first thing is, how do you know you have it? But is there something we can look at to see if somebody may be at a higher risk of developing atrial fibrillation than somebody else? Are there any risk markers? Are we talking about are we talking about other diseases or just no, but we'll stick to now we're sticking with HCM. <laughs> well, I mean, if if you are having uh, uh, symptoms of shortness of breath or chest pain, that means that the heart is having some troubles. And if you have obstruction to the blood flow out of the heart, uh, you can have a you know, you know, you can get atrial fibrillation. It it just uh, no. Does left atrial dimension or size have a well, role? it can, it can. It's not a hundred percent, but you can have enlargement of the left atrium, and that is a sign of of uh, um, that you you know you are prone to getting atrial fibrillation. Now, not everybody with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has a large left atrium. Some people, you know, they're mild, moderate, and severe. So it can be all, you know, different. If you're very, if you have severe enlargement, then you have a greater chance of having atrial fibrillation. And, but the only way you're going to know that is you, you've got to have that echocardiogram. So, I mean, if you've had the echocardiogram, somebody tells you your left atrium is large, you are, you are in a regular rhythm, and then suddenly go and get an irregular rhythm, you, you're probably in atrial fibrillation and needs to be looked at. Are there home monitoring devices that can work to yeah, identify it? 
Well, that's what we said. The Apple Watch and the Fitbit can, uh, can either one can work. The one advantage of the Fitbit is you can record it for longer than 30 seconds. Uh, the Apple Watch will only record it for 30 seconds. But one advantage of the Apple Watch is you can have that on your wrist. You just hit the crystal and it takes off. So I, you know, that's a that's a big advantage. The Fitbit, you've got to you've got to have a device that you you get this device that you put your fingers on and you test it. Well, you may not have that device with you when you're out and about somewhere and you get an irregular rhythm. Actually, the Fitbit Sense is the one I have. It actually has an app that you press EKG and show them. Right. So they've changed that. Um, not great for podcasting, but you hold the corners of the device yeah. and sit quietly, which I'm not going to be doing for the next 30 seconds. Right. Um, but I will get a read and it will tell me if I'm in normal sinus rhythm or not. So um, that is a wearable device. So let's say somebody is identified as having atrial fibrillation and it comes and it goes and it's kind of sporadic, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Right. So what does that mean? And what are the risks of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation? Well, you, you can, uh, you, you can for, again, form clots and you want to, uh, you know, I think that if, if it seems like it's coming and going, there are now devices that we can give you that will monitor for, for 30 days and you see how often it's happening. If it's, if it's really happening frequently, then you know, something needs to be done about it. You know, even I think even an occasional episode, something needs to happen. You know, you need to treat it. And I, you know, um, most people are on beta blockers. Anyhow, when, once the diagnosis is made, if you're not on beta blockers, that can be started. I'm in normal sinus rhythm. <laughs> in case anybody was wondering. Um, okay, so... Which we Fitbit have, model is that that you have? I have the Fitbit Sense. Sense, okay. Um, I will say I'm on my second replacement because there's battery issues and some other issues. Um, and I'm hoping that they get a little bit better with the technology, but where we are right now is pretty good. It's not great, but it's good. I think the Apple Watch is a little bit superior here, but I'm not an Apple person, so I don't have one. Um, okay, so we've identified atrial fibrillation. We've said that it's paroxysmal. It comes and it goes. So what are features of AFib that people should be keeping track of? Length of events, rate of heart rate, what, what's important? Well, you want to know, know. Well, you want, you want to know what the heart rate is and you, you, know, you do want to have an idea of how long it does last. But, but um, I think that if you're starting to pick, detect episodes of atrial fibrillation, you need a longer term monitor because, you know, uh, you're, it may be more frequent than you realize. And that's what we need to know. So we've identified AFib. We know the rate range and we're reporting that to our physicians and they're monitoring it. Um, we know how often it's happening and that we're noticing it. And what should we be doing as patients in terms of therapies? Do we need anticoagulation if we only get AFib once a month? Um, do we need it if we're going into AFib every day or should all patients with atrial fibrillation? Oh, I, think, I think that, I think that if we're detecting episodes of atrial fibrillation, uh, if, 
you know, if it's more than just a few a few minutes at a time and it's becoming frequent, then you got to be anticoagulated because you don't want to get a clot in your heart and have a stroke. And and I think that again, it we 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 really need to know how frequent it is. It's not enough to depend on the patient to try to decide that. That's why when we detect it, we will monitor for a longer time. So we're going to do anticoagulation if it's required, if it's a burden that looks like it needs to be anticoagulated because we don't want to throw a clot. What other medications can work to manage atrial fibrillation? Well, uh, beta blockers are the drug of first choice. Uh, you can also use uh, calcium channel blockers like diltiazem or verapamil. Uh, there's a, a beta blocker Sotolol is fairly good against uh, atrial fibrillation. And then if you're really in trouble, there's a drug called amiodarone that we use. It works very well in terms of treating atrial fibrillation, but unfortunately has a lot of side effects. And when we use it, we tend to use it for short periods of time. Like if, we have a, like if you've had heart surgery for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you have atrial fibrillation postoperatively, we'll treat you for six to 12 weeks and then hopefully get off of it because the drug has side effects in terms of hyper or hypothyroidism. It can cause uh, liver problems. It can cause uh, lung problems. And we, you know, if you're on it for a while, we monitor your liver function. We check your uh, thyroid function uh, and, uh, and your pulmonary function. And so vision. We, and yeah, and vision. And we try, we try, uh, so we, we try to use it only short term. Now there are some people that that you know they've if they've had um, you know they've had atrial if they're in chronic atrial fibrillation that's a real problem and that's why we try to prevent you from getting into chronic atrial fibrillation. And if you're really having trouble controlling it, we try to use the lowest dose possible of the amiodarone. The usual starting dose you, you load somebody with it, and then what we end up with hopefully is no more than 200 milligrams a day, and sometimes even 100 milligrams a day. So we try not to use uh, high doses uh, because the higher the dose, the, the greater the chance for side effects. And unfortunately, you know, it's a good drug for what it's needed, but it has side effects, which you cannot be minimized. No, they can't be. Um, they, can, they can be deadly. My, my sister did not die from a cardiac arrest out of the blue, she had amiodarone toxicity. And that's what led her to a cardiac arrest. So you gotta be careful with treating you and you have to make sure you right. understand the whole system. And, you, and you've gotta be very carefully followed up. Uh, you just don't start that drug and say goodbye. Yeah, that is it's it's a tough one. Very difficult, yeah. There are some other drugs that were thought to be used um, for AFib and some are still. Uh, but maybe not as commonly. Moltac was one that we thought was promising, right. but, but it didn't really. It hasn't, hasn't, hasn't uh, they, people thought it was sort of a cousin to amiodarone, but it never really took off and it didn't seem to work as well. Yeah. What about Ticacin? Can It can be used and uh, 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 yeah, that can be used. Okay, just not very common. No, There's a lot of no, other drugs no. we can try before that. Right, right. So now we get to a point where we've managed atrial fibrillation with medication, and maybe it's progressed on from 
a once in a while thing to either a very frequent event or chronic atrial fibrillation. You're stuck there. You can't get out of it. Um, when do patients go for additional therapies like radiofrequency or cryoablations? Well, it, it, it's, it's not just, you've got to know more. You need to know what's all going on with the patient. Do they have outflow tract obstruction? Or do they have resting or provocable outflow tract obstruction? I've gotten to the point now that I feel that if, if we see significant obstruction, either at rest or with provocation, and you have atrial, you go into atrial fibrillation once or twice, then we've got to, that means that the heart is under strain. And that means we start looking at the patient for surgery to get rid of the outflow tract obstruction. And at the time of that surgery, would do a, a surgical procedure called a maze procedure to prevent the atrial fibrillation. Uh, because the longer you are in atrial fibrillation, the chances are it's going to become chronic. And we don't want that to happen. We want to avoid chronic atrial fibrillation. Uh, and uh, uh, now the surgeons have gotten very good at it and what they'll, tip, they'll do, they, they make incisions in the atrial chambers and at the same time they will remove the left atrial appendage, which is that sac that it's a, a, off the left atrium so, so that you don't form a clot in it. And that's, that, that's what we do. It's be, we become a bit more aggressive than we had been in the past. There were times early you know, years ago we might say, well, you know, if you're having some paroxysmal atrial fibrillation that's intermittent, we'll just treat it and, you know, use drugs. And, and uh, but as time would go on, people would develop more chronic, you know, become more, more frequent. And, and that's just something we can avoid now. And I think that's what we ought to do. So we talked about obstructive HCM with AFIM. We talked about how those patients may want to lead more, head more towards my, myectomy at this time. Mm -hmm. um, there might be a role for those patients to try something like a myosin inhibitor if that plays out. Um, there's not consistent information yet available about no. myosin inhibitors and atrial fibrillation. No. So before somebody asks us the question, we don't know yet. I might be learning a little bit more at ACC. So stay tuned for some pop in videos, not this weekend, but next weekend live from ACC. I'm going to try to do that a little bit with you. Um, so we've got that. Um, those are the, the, the core treatment options when you're dealing with obstruction and potential for surgery. But most people don't get surgery. The majority of people don't have myectomies, the minority do. And 25 to 35% of people with HCM have atrial fibrillation. So if they're not obstructed or not obstructed to a degree where they are willing to consider surgery, um, when should somebody consider a, a catheter-based approach to a, a, a well, I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if you're truly non-obstructive, then that's, that would be the thing that, you know, if you're having, if you're having frequent episodes of atrial fibrillation, this can be dealt with with a catheter. You uh, put little burns in the atrial chambers and uh, and hope get rid of and hopefully get rid of the atrial fibrillation. I don't think it's quite as effective as a maze procedure, but it you know it has some efficacy and can be attempted. But again, that we would tell, say in people who have 
uh, non-obstructive disease. And you know, people with not, you got to be careful with non-obstruction. You know, where where are the people on that curve also? You know, where how are they doing otherwise? And you need to you need to know that. Are they getting short of breath? Are they getting swelling in their legs? You know, you got to know how's the overall heart function. How many times can somebody try a radiofrequency ablation before? we know it's really not going to work to stop them from going into AFib. I, well, it depends on who's doing it, who's, who, how skillful the people are that are doing it. And, you know, if, if you have somebody that's really good at it, you know, a couple of times, and you, you just want to pick the person that's going to do it, that, that's very important. And uh, um, Specifically within the HCM patient population, it's not a common thing to do. So you want somebody who has done it multiple times, right, um, right. has a team around them that can help right. patient selection and also help monitor your rhythms afterwards. I think the data suggests right now that a first attempt uh, of a radiofrequency ablation has a 40% success rate in HCMA fib. A second attempt has a 40% and a third attempt, it drops to 20% success rate when done by a known operator who has experience. So I think, you know, I've seen people go five, six, seven times. So I would say, you know, after that third time, you really need to have a good discussion about, all right, how else can I get myself out of this? Um, now, let's say for those few people that nothing's working, um, the meds aren't keeping them out of AFIM, the maze didn't work or the ablations didn't work and they're stuck in atrial fibrillation. Is there a role for using device therapy to help get an atrial kick between the fibrillation beads? Not, not, not it typically. Doesn't, I wouldn't think that works very well. The one thing that you do want to do, if you're going to be left in atrial fibrillation and uh, you, you might want to put in a, a Watchman device in the left atrial appendage to prevent uh, clots from forming, even though you're going to be on a blood thinner. And actually, in some pa patients, you know, you might get away with the watchman by itself, but I, most of the time, not not when you're dealing with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. There are some conditions where you just have atrial fibrillation, you don't have other co coexistent disease, and uh, a watchman device is a little sort of a device that fits into the atrium and closes it off, and you might use it. But in a typical Hocum patient, I think we still probably need some anticoagulation as well as the watchman device. We, we just don't want you to form clots and throw them off. So we have had a number of questions in our recent Big Hearted Warrior tours and other events where patients are wondering if watchman is just the answer for them. And we've gotten some interesting insight from electrophysiologists stating that the data in, in Watchman and HCM is not very clear. The left atrial dilation may make it not function like it does in other people. And right. even in the event of a Watchman, there is still a pretty significant risk of throwing a clot. So if you want to get, if you need to get off a blood thinner, and we have a few of these people who are having adverse events with their blood thinners, um, it's an option to lower your risk, but you should not think your risk is zero. That's right. Yeah. Okay. This also brings up another point uh, about which anticoagulant you want to use. There are these <laughs> ones that you just take a fixed dose like Eliquis. The only problem is you never really know how well anticoagulated you are. And that still is a 
that still is, uh, you know, there's been all kinds of data out there saying that drugs like Eloquis, uh, you know, are the thing to use now, but you don't really know how, how well anticoagulated you are. So there still is a reason to use warfarin or Coumadin where you can actually measure blood levels and know where you stand. So I will take a moment into a regulatory argument for a second. Um, you know, which anticoagulant? It sounds like a simple question for a patient and a doctor to discuss together options and come up with what's best for that patient. And um, recently, uh, we've become involved with a little bit of a, um, an oversight, or not an oversight, an overreaching of plan benefit administrators, who are the people who control what drugs are on your formulary for your insurance company, okay? Mm -hmm. They've made a decision in this particular program through um, one of the Caremark um, Blue Cross plans, I think, is doing it, and there's a couple other ones. Um, so they've said they're only going to have one um, DOAC, one of the new anticoagulants on the formulary, or warfarin. And there's a reason why somebody may want Eliquis over Zeralto. Um, so Zeralto, Eliquis, Plavix, they, these are different classes or different types of blood thinners. But this, this process of non-medical switching of your insurance company coming in and deciding you should have this drug over that drug, this has got to stop. And we need our regulators to get involved there and our legislators to get involved there and put that decision right back in the hands of the patient and the doctor and get the PBMs out of that. They don't right. belong there. Um, right. And I know a couple of our community members were impacted by that change and we will continue on the fight there. So- The major um, problem for all drugs, the tell them telling us what to use and worse than that, is when they change the manufacturer and you don't know that they've changed the manufacturer and all manufacturers aren't of the same quality and you can run into very severe problems. Exactly. So try to be consistent in your drug, your dosing, your manufacturer. And when it changes, please make extra careful notes of any additional symptoms. Um, and if you were in the situation where um, you, are, you don't have access to something that was prescribed to you, please reach out to the HCMA office. We are documenting these events for use in advocacy efforts elsewhere. Back to atrial fibrillation now. Um, okay, so a patient has been medicated. We've tried ablation. It doesn't work. And they're stuck in atrial fibrillation. Um, there's an old school treatment um, called uh, AV nodal ablation, thus making you pacemaker dependent. Can you discuss what that procedure is well, and what, if it's useful? Basically, what we do is we stop the um, conduction through the what's called the AV node. That's the area between the upper chambers and the lower where the impulses go through. And so if you can't control it, then they... They, they just basically can ablate that area so that then, then, then the rapid rate doesn't go through and you, you can, you know, you have better control over the heart rate. We're not doing that much anymore. Does happen sometimes when all else fails, but we, 
we try not to get that far. And that's again why it particularly in the, the, the ones that are obstructed or provocably obstructed and they go into atrial fibrillation, that's the kind of stuff we want to stop. And we want to intervene before that kind of thing happens where you get into chronic atrial fibrillation and you can't control it anymore and you've got to do an AV nodal ablation and then put in a pacemaker because then you've got, then, then you've got uh, you know, uh, uh, another, another device to have to concern yourself with. And uh, um, sometimes we put in two wires and, you know, and there's always a chance that wire fractures and batteries wear out and all that stuff. So we want to try to avoid getting that far. That's, you know, that makes but it sense. is something else to do if we're in trouble, you know, that's. Exactly. Okay. So I want to go backwards a step because we missed a therapy and I use the term loosely um, for atrial fibrillation called cardioversion. Right. Can you explain what a cardioversion is right. and cardioversion, when it should or shouldn't be done? Well, well cardioversion uh, we do when you get the acute onset of atrial fibrillation. If, if you know for certain that it's been there just a minutes to hours, uh, no more than say two days, we would cardiovert you as quickly as possible and get you out of the rhythm. If we don't know how long it's been there, then we would do what's called a transesophageal echocardiogram to make sure that there are no clots in the heart. If we find a clot in the heart, we've got to get you anticoagulated and thin the blood in, and then repeat the transesophageal echocardiogram to make sure that that clot is gone before we cardiovert you because we don't want to cause a stroke with cardioversion. So, it, so if you go into atrial fibrillation quick, and you know it's early, get to the emergency room as quickly as you can and, and, and get the cardioversion. This raises one other thing though that we haven't talked about. People with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy should stay away from alcohol because alcohol can cause atrial fibrillation. And if you're prone, prone to it and you drink, you're gonna get it. And that's, that's so I tell most of my patients not to drink. Well, I think there's also beyond alcohol. Um, I think individuals can have triggers. Um, Thankfully, I was not an AFib patient myself, but my family members were. Um, my sister had, you know, pretty, she wasn't chronic AFib, but she was paroxysmal multiple times a week, high rates. Um, but she couldn't touch even a sip of wine, just a sip of wine. That was a trigger for her. My father, who was a reformed alcoholic in the 70s, um, yay dad, recovery works. Um, he couldn't touch a chocolate. And I can recall a night when he wanted the chocolate cake. And I said, dad, you know what's going to happen? And he said, shut up. I want the chocolate cake. And I said, I'm not coming to the ER in the morning, dad. And he said, it's not going to happen. Next morning, my mother calls me and says, guess where he is? And he told me not to call you. So I showed up in the emergency room and okay, this, this is adult listening. Kids aren't here. I just walked into the ER and looked at my father and said, asshole, was it worth it? And he laughed at me while he was getting cardioverted for the eighth or 10th time. So you got to know your triggers and you also know, have, have to know the price of those triggers. And it's not inconsequential to get cardioverted. But alcohol is, alcohol is much more common than chocolate. And, and, it, and it's, 
Yeah. Definitely is. That's why they call it holiday heart, right? Right. Exactly. You overindulge. And if you're prone to arrhythmias, you're going to, you're going to end up in the hospital getting cardioverted or, or learning about that. Okay. So what, we have a couple questions here we're going to go to. Um, first is not a question. It's a comment and a follow-up from important news that happened last week. Happy birthday, Harry. Oh, I see. see. The community's reaching out again. Um, Sarah was detecting her AFib back in 2019 with her Apple Watch, and uh, she found it very reassuring. Um, back to Watchmen. Do they improve quality of life or are they sim simply a mitigation for stroke risk? Well, I, I think it's mainly that it cuts down on the risk of stroke. I think that's the, the biggest, it doesn't do anything for the atrial fibrillation. It, it you know, it just basically, uh, you, uh, it doesn't, you don't no longer have that sack where the clot's going to form. So additionally to that, I think the selling point of Watchmen and the attractive difference is most people can get off of anticoagulation if they use it. However, in HCM, we don't have a lot of data of Watchmen and HCM. Right. I think we need to right. look at that That's more right. before right. you really know if it's useful or not. I do know a handful of patients who've done it because they have adverse reactions to anticoagulants. So, right. or right. gut bleeds that need to resolve or other unexplained bleeds that they don't know where they're coming right. from and they're working right. on figuring that out. Right. So I think you need to have a good conversation with people who really understand the benefits and the risks. Yeah, Ross is just commenting that he couldn't regulate his INR on Warfarin, so he's on Eliquist, and he's also concerned that there are long-term dementia risks with Warfarin use, and he doesn't want to ever go back to that. Um, Ross, I like your brain functioning the way it is, so I'd like to keep it that way too. Um, so we're good. Um, all right. Harry, what else should people know about atrial fibrillation in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? I don't know. We pretty much covered what, what, what you know. I, I think, uh, um, I, I think that yeah, you got to be aware if you're having it, and you just don't let, don't, don't sit on it. I mean, that's. I think that now as treatments have improved, it's more important than ever not to. To, to try as best we can to avoid it and get rid of it. And, and so that it doesn't, so that the chamber size does not progress. That's the, we don't want the heart to get larger, either the, either the uh, upper chambers or even the lower ones. You know, if you, if you have a really a lot of trouble controlling your rhythm with atrial fibrillation, you can, it puts more of a strain on the heart. And you know, it might push it on to needing a heart transplant. So we don't. We want to do everything we can to keep that heart function as normal as possible. So I'm going to pivot from AF, and we're going to stay in the AF lane. But I want to kind of take a turn to function. So ejection fraction. So if you're in chronic or recurrent paroxysmal atrial fibrillation at high rates, we know this does damage to the ventricle over time as well. Can you address what happens if the heart starts to drop the ejection fraction? Well, well if it if it if if the ejection fraction starts going down, then the uh, that means the cardiac output's going down, and that means also that when the when the cardiac output goes down, 
the pressure can go up in the lungs and you really get short of breath. And, you know, you start running into troubles with if you if you get what we call pulmonary hypertension, then the the uh, the right side of the heart starts to suffer. So all together, we're running into now, not only are we having problems on the left side, then we can have problems on the right side. So we don't want to, we want to do everything we can to not have this syndrome progress. And that's, that's why, you know, we, uh, some, some patients that have severe pulmonary hypertension associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they, they can really get into very severe troubles. And, you know, even when those are, I've seen a number of those patients that have had severe obstruction and even operating on them, uh, getting rid of the obstruction, they have prolonged recovery. Sometimes they don't recover as well as we'd like them to. And so uh, this, you know, we, we've got to think about the fact that, you know, uh, we're, we're now recognizing this disease sooner and, and the, uh, you don't want the, those problems to progress. We don't want to see people with pulmonary hypertension or right-sided heart failure or things. We want to intervene before those things happen. And I think as time is going on, because we're more tuned into what happens with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we can prevent those things from happening. And I think that's so that the treatment for the disease is changing because we're lear we've learned more about it. And that's, that's what's really important. I think that's really an important fact to bring up. Once, once AFib starts and we, we don't get in front of it, you nearly always see the, the ejection fraction start to, to blunt and to drop. And this is a sign, you know, the atria is now struggling, the ventricle is now struggling. Now we're pushing it over to the right side and the right side is going to start struggling, both atria and, and ventricle. So rather than isolating HCM to the left ventricle, now the whole heart is impacted and it has this downstream possibility of really impairing quality of life. And, and I do want to talk a little bit about the um, emotional side uh, and psychological well-being of atrial fibrillation. It really can rock your world because it can really leave you unable to function and being completely normal on one day and then in atrial fibrillation and highly symptomatic and really feeling very, very challenged to, to function normally. And I encourage family members who don't have AFib to really take heed that when your loved one is in AFib, it can be incredibly challenging for them. So give them a little, give them a little room. It's rough. Um, you can't breathe. Your, your heart feels like it's flopping out of your chest sometimes. The faster the rate, the more upsetting it is. And uh, it's worrisome for the patient at the time, although typically not life-threatening in the sense of cardiac arrest is looming. But it can throw you into heart failure with fluid in the lungs. And that, that, that's definitely a sign we're getting into trouble. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and uh, you, you, gotta, you gotta be careful. So, you, you know, you just don't ignore it. Absolutely. Okay, any other questions, you can post them now. So Harry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use this as a little ad space and tell you about something exciting we're working on here at the office. Um, so I've talked before about the Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act, which is a piece of legislation that we are hoping to drop in multiple states that will help improve surveillance in the well-child examination, looking for family histories of heart disease, 
as well as providing training to those medical professionals doing those screenings. So the good news is we're about to launch some major efforts and we're going to have call block nights where you can volunteer and join us in a Zoom room. We'll give you legislators to call and we will help guide you through the process to help educate legislators about what the Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act is and why they want to um, support such an initiative. New Jersey right now is the only state in the union that actually asks cardiac questions in the well-child examination. And we are encouraging every other state to adopt this language so that we can help find more families with not only HCM, but all forms of genetic acquired and congenital heart disease. So stay tuned for how you can get involved there or go visit the HCMA website and check on the calendar for legislative uh, call block nights. So there was my little ad for the HCM Act. Um, and now I'm gonna give Harry an ad for HCM Academy, which is a new educational program that the HCMA is partnering in to help educate community cardiologists and community practitioners on the appropriate management and surveillance of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. These are online courses that can be found um, with a click, couple of clicks of a button on the computer. And they have a live component where physicians like Dr. Harry Lever join the physicians in a discussion group and present slides and talk about HCM individually, take their questions. And these are all experts in HCM or people with extra knowledge of HCM conducting these training courses. So we have genetic counselors, we have nurse practitioners, we have physicians, we have um, a great faculty. Uh, okay, I'm on faculty. Um, Marty Marin, Anjali Owens, and John Lynn Jeffries are the faculty. We help create the content with input from everybody. So um, if you want your doctors to learn about HCM, we are providing an opportunity for them to learn about HCM from Dr. Harry Lever. Pretty great opportunity. So sign your doctors up, encourage them to participate. So um, it, it's been a slow start getting things up and running. It's a new system that we're operating. Uh, but now that we know what we're doing a little bit better, we need to get more people to show up for HCM Academy. So um, any comments on HCM Academy, Harry? No, I've done, I don't know, four classes so far. Wish I had a few more people in them, but you know, we, we've been trying. Send your doctors in. Dr. Lever wants to right. talk to them. Right. And um, actually, I'm going into a meeting right now to talk about bringing that oh, maybe a little bit broader. So stay tuned for international outreach with HCM Academy. Fingers crossed, coming soon. Um, okay. I don't see any other questions today. If you have any questions on atrial fibrillation, you're welcome to join us on social media in our discussion group. Uh, send any questions you have to the HCMA. We will filter them appropriately. Uh, go to the HCMA website for hcm.org to learn more about atrial fibrillation or any aspect of HCM you want to learn about. Dr. Lever, as always, thank you for joining us on Tales from the Heart. We appreciate you. Have a great day. Thank you. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4hcm.org. Become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patient stories about HCM and their management, and an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist to go over the slides, ask questions, and 
dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free and you can find them at 4hcm.org or at thehcmacademy.com. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4hcm.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Boston Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4hcm.org? Monday through Friday, almost every day you can find a discussion group. Whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, premyectomy, screening your family, there's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups moderated by a peer volunteer and you can sign up in advance at 4hcm.org. Just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4hcm.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4hcm.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific.